Today's episode discusses abortions and the contentious debates surrounding them. This may be difficult content for some. On a hot Saturday morning in August 2018, I drove to my first shift as a clinic escort. Earlier in the week, I read through a handbook of guidelines and tips for clinic escorting. One of the tips recommended escorts not share their name with any anti-abortion protesters. Instead, the handbook instructed volunteers to give protesters a fake name to conceal their identity. I continued to mull over the handbook's guidelines in my head as I drove to the clinic. As I turned left into the long driveway to the clinic, which sits off the main street behind a restaurant and a tire replacement shop. I scanned the faces of people standing in the surrounding lots and looked for a parking space out of the way of the commotion. I rolled down my window as a smiling woman in a pink vest quickly approached my car. As she came closer, I announced to her, Hi, my name is Justina and I'm here for clinic escort training. Her smile quickly turned into a stern look as she remarked, Oh, you're with them pointing to a small group of people putting on vests that looked suspiciously similar to her pink one. It was at that point that I realized I had broken one of the clinic escorting guidelines before I'd even parked my car. I tell this story to demonstrate the mass confusion that exists outside of abortion clinics across the US. In the three years since that morning, I've come to know the names and faces of the numerous and ever-rotating protesters that take up space around the Women's Choice Clinic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Despite spending countless of hours in the clinic's parking lot, I still sometimes confuse protesters for patients or clinic escorts. This confusion is no accident. Anti-abortion protesters consciously produce chaos and confusion in an effort to prevent people from accessing the abortion services they are seeking. This is just one of the hurdles patients are forced to maneuver. Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I'm Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Today's episode will focus on clinic escorting. In the last few years, I have wondered about the history of this volunteer-based work and its white feminist origins, clinic escorts' role in the abortion access movement, and how white cisgender clinic escorts like myself can approach this work from a reproductive justice perspective. I see this episode as the beginning of a larger research project, one that I hope to continue working on in the coming years. Therefore, this episode is by no means a comprehensive look at clinic escorting. Rather, it is my attempt to scratch the surface of a larger and hopefully fruitful project. Let's start by historically contextualizing the contentious abortion debate since the 1970s. 
On January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that a pregnant person's fundamental right to privacy laid out in the 14th Amendment outweighed the state's interest in maternal health and a fetus's life, ultimately protecting abortion rights during the first trimester of a pregnancy. Since the groundbreaking ruling in 1973, states have passed over 1,000 abortion restrictions. Additionally, in 1976, the federal government passed the Hyde Amendment, which prohibited the use of federal funds for abortion services. These restrictions have made abortion access more difficult for patients living in poverty and patients of color. Let's pause here for a moment to hear a clinic escort link her work to the issue of abortion access. A quick note about this audio. This interview was conducted following a Saturday morning escorting shift. Therefore, you will hear protesters holding a service in the background. Well, I will be completely honest. I mean, I think part of it, you know, like all altruism is a little bit of ego. Um, I do feel like I'm helping people. And that's, in in part, it's kind of selfish, right? Because I hate that these folks are out here trying to block people from coming into the clinic. But since I've been here, I realized that, like, um, you know, abortion and this sort of false binary between being pro-choice and pro-life is super problematic because choice is not a choice. If you don't have the money to pay for the procedure, if you don't have the support, if you don't have any of those things, I think um, access is a big issue to abortion. And so this role of clinic escorting helps me to sort of help mitigate that access issue that patients have when they pull in and they're blocked by protesters. Alongside the government's attacks on abortion access, the political debate around abortion became increasingly contentious and even violent in the decades following Roe. With the rise of the religious conservative new right in the 1970s came an increase in anti-abortion protests. Religious leaders like televangelist Jerry Falwell of the Moral Majority linked anti-abortion rhetoric to Christian beliefs and the Republican Party. In the 1980s, organizations like Operation Rescue and Army of God perpetrated violent and sometimes fatal attacks on abortion clinics, abortion providers, and even clinic escorts. In the 1980s and early 1990s, to prevent patients from entering clinics and receiving care, anti-abortion protesters used physically and verbally aggressive tactics. They also frequently vandalized clinics by putting glue in door locks, removing door handles, placing flies and maggots in clinic offices, and damaging air-conditioned systems. These protests created the need for clinic escorts, which were sometimes also referred to as clinic defenders. Clinic escorts in the past and today help patients enter abortion clinics. Early clinic escorts often created a human barrier around an abortion clinic by interlinking their arms. They would allow patients to enter the clinic while at the same time preventing protesters from breaking through the barrier. Because escort protester conflicts were often face-to-face, these encounters could be extremely tense. For example, in Tulsa in 1992, 14 anti-abortion protesters were arrested after they blocked the doors to reproductive services, an abortion clinic. That Saturday morning was unusual because Joseph Scheidler, a notorious anti-abortion extremist, was in Tulsa to lead a rally. The night before, Clinic escorts held a vigil and slept at the reproductive services to protect the clinic from potential vandalism. 
The next morning, the escorts assisted patients as they entered the clinic. Barbara Santee, a clinic escort, remembered their first patient was an 18 or 19-year-old woman accompanied by her mother. When her mother let her out of the car close to the clinic, Santee escorted her to the door. But when they opened it, a group of antis rushed in and used their bodies to block the entrance. Another group of anti-abortion protesters pinned three escorts against the wall, while others surrounded Santee and the patient, screaming that she was killing her baby. Ultimately, Santee got the patient to her car for safety, but the harassment continued as the anti swarmed her car and screamed at the patient's mother as she tried to attend to her daughter's needs. Despite the tremendous trauma the patient experienced, Santee remembered that she kept her appointment that day. When reflecting on the experience, Santee said, and I quote, Unfortunately, I can see no end to this bone-weary battle, but I am committed to staying in the fight for as long as it takes to assure that women keep their hard-won right to reproductive freedom. So I will be at the barricades in front of the clinic next Saturday and the Saturday after that and the Saturday after that, end quote. Between 1977 and 1993, the federal government refused to investigate the organizations executing attacks and incidents outside of abortion clinics. Consequently, 113 arsons, 88 assaults and batteries, two kidnappings, 188 stalking allegations, and 166 threats targeting abortion providers were considered to be renegade incidents. The federal government's approach to violence against abortion clinics and providers began to shift only after an abortion provider was murdered in 1993. The following year, in May 1994, President Bill Clinton signed the Freedom to Access to Clinic Entrance Act, also known as the FACE Act, into law. He was the first president to explicitly support abortion rights. The federal law prohibited the use of force, threats, intimidation, physical interference, or physical obstruction to injure an abortion provider or someone seeking abortion services. Some states have enhanced these protections with additional laws, including the Clinic Protection Act. Although these state laws are very similar to the FACE Act, states have more opportunities to enforce these laws. Thanks to the FACE Act, volunteers today are able to escort patients into clinics without as much physical interference. Despite that, Escorts are still tasked with helping patients maneuver around sometimes hundreds of protesters, often representing an assortment of different organizations. To give you a sense of the environment outside of an abortion clinic today, let's discuss the groups of protesters that visit the Women's Choice Clinic in Greensboro, North Carolina. This clinic performs abortions five days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. If the clinic is open and performing abortions, protesters are present, although the number of protesters may vary dramatically. Two different crisis pregnancy centers take turns parking outside the clinic, the Pregnancy Network and the Compassion Care Center. Crisis pregnancy centers are often religiously affiliated organizations that aim to dissuade pregnant people from choosing abortion. They typically offer a few services like pregnancy tests, and occasionally provide pregnant people with supplies like diapers or baby clothes, all while preaching an anti-abortion message. 
In addition to bringing a group of employees and volunteers dressed in matching t-shirts or pink vests to the clinic each morning, the Pregnancy Network and the Compassion Care Center park a large van or an RV in the parking lot adjacent to the clinic. The Pregnancy Network's RV is outfitted with an ultrasound machine, which they use to persuade patients to enter the vehicle and potentially miss their appointments at the clinic. Crisis pregnancy centers are extremely well organized and often confuse patients into thinking they are affiliated with the clinic. In fact, the pink-vested woman who approached my car in the story I told at the top of this episode was a volunteer with this crisis pregnancy center. I fell directly into their trap. In addition to the crisis pregnancy centers, other religious organizations like Love Life bring anywhere from a dozen to a hundred protesters to the Greensboro Clinic on Saturday mornings. Protesters preach, sing, pray, hold signs, yell at patients, often amplifying their voices with microphones, and they sometimes stop or stand in front of cars. It is chaotic, to say the least. Clinics in different regions deal with a variety of protesters and protest styles. To provide you with another perspective, I want to play you a clip from an interview I did with a former clinic escort, Sophie Dietzel. I found Sophie when I began researching the history of clinic escorting. While completing her undergraduate degree in sociology at Vassar College, she wrote a capstone thesis examining the interactions between pro-choice and pro-life activists outside of abortion clinics. To conduct this research, she clinic escorted once a week at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Poughkeepsie, New York. The following clip provides a sense of the environment outside of this New York-based clinic. I think a big thing that came up for me was the realization that the abortion clinic kind of ends up being one of the few places in American political discourse where opposing ideologies interact and are literally put face to face. Um, Obviously, like, protests and counter-protests are a thing. Movements and counter-movements have been studied time and again. But there aren't often these spaces that every week the two are put together. So what I came to realize was it was kind of like we were all doing a, a little dance. One side would do something and the other side would react and vice versa. And... I was really fascinated by the fact that the tactics used were actually not all that different. We're kind of two extremes. Like the folks who are out there every Wednesday morning in the snow and the rain escorting and the folks who are out there protesting each week, we're the ones who are devoted enough to devote to spend our time on this issue. So even we, we see the issue diametrically opposed but I think one of the one of the mirrorings that I found most interesting, as I mentioned earlier, was was the communities that formed. So the social infrastructure was really, really clear. And I think it was really moving for me as a college student to interact with all these people who I never would have found in my community. The security guard even ended up when he left and found another job, he was like, I want to come back and wear a pink vest. And this man did not seem like someone I would expect to do that. And that was amazing. Um, and I saw it on the protesters' side as well. I saw them bringing friends and introducing them to each other. And I saw that those friends would come back. And there was something about the social infrastructure that gave a certain amount of accountability to, to keep showing up that really fascinated me. 
Um, I think another thing that really stood out to me was what I called kind of the turf wars that took place there. There was a big effort to kind of claim space as our own. And obviously we had the kind of legal boundaries of clinic property versus public property. So the way that the space was structured, the escorts were standing in the parking lot. And literally if a, if a protester put their foot across the property line, the security guard would go say something. And I'm sure you've seen the same sort of thing where you are, but they kept on trying because it was just a way of taunting us. Another, another moment that I think felt really representative of that to me was they, there was that little, I think there's a word for it, but the patch of grass between the sidewalk and the street where the protesters each week would put all their signs saying horrible things about the patients and God. And one of the other escorts one weekend just took it upon herself to go plant some new seeds there and put all these signs saying like new seedling life, which I think was really trying to appeal to their love of quote unquote life and thinking that maybe if new life was growing there, the protesters would not be able to put their signs there and would retreat a bit. And it ended up turning into the protesters turned it into a graveyard and had little fake tombstones, but it just appeared to me as this this constant push and pull where we were each fighting over over kind of a, this battle to frame the space around us, to claim the space around us. Um, and it's one of these things where I don't think anyone can win. And I think sometimes it was easy to, which felt kind of this felt kind of sad for me to realize, but it was easy to kind of forget why we were actually there sometimes. Um, I think I even found myself getting wrapped into like especially on a slow morning where not that many people were arriving, forgetting that like, okay, I'm really just here to be a body of support. The clinic has pretty strict rules about not engaging with the protesters. We definitely don't do that. But I think a lot of times it can turn into this, like even silently, how can we show them how vehemently we disagree with them, which of course makes sense, but I think is really just a representation of, we're, we're so different, but in our steadfast support of our side, we're actually not all that different. To end this episode, I want to think about the ways white cisgender clinic escorts can approach this work from a reproductive justice perspective. Clinic escorting is rooted in the reproductive rights and white feminist traditions, both of which have problematic histories. Therefore, as white women clinic escorts, We must alter our approach to this work to ensure we are fighting for all pregnant people's right to have a child, not have a child, and raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. White women have historically dominated the pro-abortion fight, and this remains true today. Additionally, the rise in white women's political participation and activism following the 2016 election led to more white women clinic escorts. I spoke about this common narrative with Sophie. After the 2016 election, I really, I think like so many people, was just so eager to take action. And and I think everyone, myself included, just felt so powerless. Reproductive rights has always been a huge passion area of mine. So I'd heard about clinic escorting. I had never talked to anyone who did it, but I knew what it was and was always kind of had it in the back of my brain as something that seemed really cool. But to be honest, I was really scared of it. My dad had a female coworker who 
had told him that she had done it in like the rural community where she went to college and honestly made it out to sound really emotionally distressing. Um, so that was really the only outlook that I had on it. And it, it freaked me out. I was, I didn't feel like I had a thick enough skin to do that. So I think I, I just put it off and, and I was trying to kind of find some other ways to get involved, but hadn't really figured out what that would look like. So I think part of it was 2016 election really like made me feel like I couldn't give myself excuses anymore and I had to just get involved and, and start trying to trying to make a difference in my community if I was so uh, opposed to what was happening in Washington. So I think there was that component. And then there was also the piece of me that really recognized that my college had not always a super productive relationship with its surrounding community. I think like a lot of small liberal arts schools, we really existed in a bubble and demographically were really different than the community that we were situated in. Um, so I think it was kind of twofold. I, I wanted to find a way to kind of fight back against the Trump administration. Um, and I also wanted to find a way to get involved in my local community. So I reached out to my local Planned Parenthood and, and started escorting and really found that most of the folks who were doing it, who were also kind of newer, really joined because of the same motivations. Um, I think you are spot on that the Trump election was a huge mobilizing factor. So it was kind of either these volunteers have been doing this for years, um, like, the, like the person who coordinated it, or a lot of new, new energy. And it was really interesting. I, talking to the coordinator about it, he really expressed a lot of worry that it was just going to be this boom that would only happen for like a month or two. And then all of a sudden his volunteers would go away. And I, and I'm sure there was some of that drop off. I mean, definitely in the, in the year that I was doing it, I noticed some of that, but I hope now that that folks have, have kind of kept their passion going and it, it's such an important program. So Beyond keeping our passion for this work, we must also make certain our approach is inclusive and centers access to abortion services. I spoke to some white clinic escorts about this important issue. The number one thing I would say is decenter yourself, decenter your experiences. Um, realize that if you're going to come out here, it's not going to be to stroke your own ego. And if that's why you want to come, you should probably stay home because when you come out here, it's not about what's going to make you feel good. It's not about what's going to give you personal satisfaction or gratification. It's, it's about patients and making sure that they can access the clinic. And it's also not about the choice they make. That's another thing that the antis really love to center, like this binary choice to either have an abortion or not have an abortion. That's not what it's about. It is about um, people having the ability to make the decision for themselves. So... Yeah, I think a lot of times people come to this work thinking that they get to come out here with a hero complex and they get to be like, oh, look at me, look at what I'm doing for folks. And that's just the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, I think that plays into the fact that our demographic is very white. And yeah. so there's a whole like white savior thing that goes into it. Um, and that's another big thing is, is that, you know, especially um, at our clinic, we are, you know, all of our lead escorts are white women. Um, we are a majority white organization. 
Um, and so we have to do a lot of work in being like really conscious and thinking really hard and also making sure we're accountable to people in our community so that we were centering reproductive justice and not reproductive rights and white feminism and the feminist feminism that tells you like, I get to go stroke my own ego because I did this good thing. Another escort added to this conversation. And that's actually what I was going to say is like, we have to listen to black leadership. Clinic escorting has historically been about reproductive rights. And if you know anything about the history of reproduction and the narratives around reproduction and, and cultural narratives and discourses just historically, then you know that white women's narratives have sort of created the abortion narrative. And, the, and it's actually, I think, created the pro-choice, pro-life binary that's really false. And so we have to listen to black leadership. She continued with a reflection on why clinic escorts are often overwhelmingly white. Don't have a lot of escorts of color, and it's kind of a catch-22 because they're actually targeted a lot more than we are. And so I feel like, well, I don't want to reach out and ask folks of color to come and escort, but at the same time, I want those people leading and working alongside of us. Um, and I want their narratives and their ideas, whether they're black and indigenous or um, people of color of other um, ethnicities, I want their narratives to lead. I don't want our narrative to lead as white women. So I think that that's something that's really important is to listen to and pay attention to the work that's being done in reproductive justice spaces and to really incorporate that into your mission statement and your bylaws and to do the training, right? Always doing the training and always learning about that. We ended our conversation with this important comment on abortion access. And I don't think that we can really do this work and center it in reproductive justice without acknowledging that, that really there is a huge disparity in the ability of access and, and the, the actual choice that there is in choice right now. The contentious debate over abortion continues to threaten the legality of it and make it inaccessible to many across the nation. Clinic escorts help to make abortions more accessible as they assist patients maneuver past hordes of protesters. Other ways white clinic escorts can approach this work from a reproductive justice perspective is by using de-escalation tactics rather than calling law enforcement, considering the ways medical racism impacts black and brown patients, avoid assuming a patient's pronouns, and collaborating with and amplifying other social justice activists organizations, and issues. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Step Toward Justice. And thank you to the clinic escorts and Sophie Dixel for agreeing to be interviewed for this episode. Additionally, I would like to thank all clinic escorts for contributing to the fight for abortion access. As I mentioned earlier, I hope this episode will turn into a larger project focused on clinic escorting. Therefore, if you have clinic escorted, I would love to interview you. If you're interested in being interviewed, please reach out to me at our Instagram at a step towards justice podcast or email us at a step towards justice at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and come back next week to hear our final episode, which examines the intersections between disability justice, LGBTQ plus activism and reproductive justice.